Worn by players like Michael Harris to meet the demand of elite ball players, the New Balance Fuel Cell 4040 V7 is a versatile option. The 4040 V7 is built for the athlete who needs responsiveness and ability to cut and run at their full speed. The model features a fuel cell foam underfoot and a synthetic and mesh upper to provide breathability, comfort, and a snug fit as you round the bases. The fuel cell midsole features nitrogen-infused foam specifically designed to propel athletes forward. Learn more about the 4040 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where fantasy becomes reality. Now, here's Frank, Scott, Chris, and Adam. What is fantasy baseball? What is XFIP? What is average exit velocity? If you've asked yourself any or all of these questions, you've come to the right place. Welcome in to Fantasy Baseball Today on Tuesday, December 7th. Frank Sample joined by Scott White. Today's pod is going to be a little bit different. I crowdsourced the Fantasy Baseball Today Facebook page. So we've got a little bit of everything going on. First and foremost, baseball is officially in a lockout. We'll talk about that. Fantasy Baseball 101, we've got some beginner stuff to talk about. Explain the different types of formats. Got some stats, analytics that we like to use. We'll explain those, what they actually mean. And I am in my first real draft of the offseason. What does Scott think of my team? We will find out. Scotty has the Christmas tree in the background, which we've talked about many times. It's a beautiful Christmas tree. Um, he also has some presents here on the desk. I am loving the festivity, Scott. What is going on? How's life going? Uh, it's going fine. It's going fine. Yes, I had a busy weekend of wrapping gifts. I am the designated gift wrapper in the family to the point that uh, I, I get it. I get approached by in-laws to wrap things for them too. Nobody, nobody seems to want to wrap anything. Uh, I enjoy it for the most part. I enjoy it for the most part. I've, 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 I've made it a, uh, th- throughout my life, uh, a goal of mine was, has been to get good at gift wrapping and through repetition. I think I'm finally there. I actually posted a thread on Twitter last year with some tips on gift wrapping for those who struggle with it. I may, I may retweet it this year because it's, there seems to be a lot of angst about it. Understandably, I mean, there's it's shameful to to have <laughs> to shoddily wrap a gift. That's why that's why it was so important to me to get good at it. I always felt this insecurity about it. My dad was amazing at wrap, wrapping gifts. He'd always get it so tight with such sharp folds, like it really. I won't say this. I was going to say something that I won't say because <laughs> there could be kids listening. That's right. Don't say it. But it 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 really helped sell things. I'll just put it that way. All right. Yeah. I mean, my family is very good at it too. I am terrible, Scott. So uh, I would be very interested in whatever thread you have to retweet. Honestly, my first thought, my original first thought, as soon as you started talking about this was like, can I send you my stuff? Like legitimately, <laughs> I'll just, like I'll just ship it to you. You, I'll pay you like whatever, twenty bucks via Venmo. Shipping costs lately, <laughs> Frank, but you probably don't want to do that. All right, so that's out of the question. But maybe I'm thinking right here on this podcast for our YouTube viewing audience. Why don't we just have you wrap a gift? Like show us how to wrap a gift on the podcast. Not today, but okay. like yeah, before- I, don't, I don't have my supplies at the ready here. <laughs> but yeah, maybe let's do it. It, it, it might, I'm not like quick about it. The, the thing is I'm self-taught. Okay. So, you know, you hear about these people who can do it really quickly or can do it with only three pieces of tape. I use a fair amount of tape. I think the tape helps to get those really, that really tight wrapping. It, 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 it hold, you need things held in place while you then move on to other folds. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I tend to use a lot more tape than probably a, uh, an expert gift wrapper would use. Um, I don't buy into the the three pieces of tape mindset at all. But it's not like you know, it's not like there's a lot of excess tape on the outside. The the extra tape that's used then gets covered over. 
Scott, so. I have a I have a real feeling that anybody who is listening or watching this podcast is also not an expert gift wrapper, <laughs> and uh, probably could use any advice that okay. you have to offer. So right. I think we could have okay. a little bit of fun with that and we uh, try that, yeah. before Christmas. So, well, what else is going on anyway? Yeah, I mean nothing. I, I don't know. We're only in a lockout, so let's go right there. Let's go from uh, Christmas to the Grinch. That. Mm, that Grinch, Rob Manfred. He held a press conference last week, Thursday morning, noting that the work stoppage was, quote, bad for business, while saying he was optimistic the 2022 regular season would still start on time. So we are officially, again, in a lockout. Uh, first time, first work stoppage in baseball since the 1994-95 player strike. Uh, and what we need to know about this right now is that, ultimately, it doesn't really mean much. It, it matters, but it only really starts to matter for us once we get to like mid late January. If there's no traction or anything going on at that point or any signs of progress, then that's pretty bad because, you know, February, obviously pitchers and catchers. And, you know, the further we get into like February, then we're talking about, all right, well, like spring training might be delayed. We might be in danger of like losing some games. So it really doesn't matter right now, but like, we have to see something at some point. Uh, during a lockout, the owners quite literally locked the players out of club facilities, meaning no workouts are allowed. Uh, allowed. And I didn't really think much about this, Scott, until I saw a tweet from Jamison Tyone where he said, since MLB chose to lock us out, I'm not able to work out with our amazing physical therapists who have been leading my post-surgery care slash progression. Now that I'm in charge of my own PT, what should my first order of business be? I'm thinking I'm done with this boot. He just had ankle surgery. That doesn't sound very good or smart. He's probably just joking. But I actually think this could maybe affect guys like Charlie Morton, Tyler Glass now. That's more of like a long-term thing. You know, guys that are rehabbing from surgery. So I hadn't thought of it before, and it could actually matter. Yeah, it could matter. It could matter for players who are rehabilitating. I mean, that's those are the most obvious ones that come to mind. But um you know, it could it could impact player progression in in ways that we can't even really anticipate, and and we'll never really know because, you know, a lot of times these players show up at spring training and they look like different players, and and we just we won't know exactly who lost out because of that time away from the facility because they they'll just look like we remember them. They won't have progressed, you know. So, um, so I'm not really sure. There's any angle to take with this other than, yeah, it seems like that could be a thing, uh, you know, depending on how long this goes on. I mean, this is a pretty dead point in the off season right right now. I mean, there, there might be free agent signings. There might be trades going down. Normally there was a huge rush before the lockout started. So, you know, a lot of those December transactions, early January tra- transactions, we've kind of already seen play out. And in terms of what players are doing behind the scenes, you know, a lot of it, I'm pretty sure a lot of it would be on their own right now anyway. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's a huge deal as far as that goes, but it's not nothing. What, one other one that came to mind was Max Muncy, right? I mean, we talked about him last week, the guy's dealing with a torn UCL. <laughs> that's what pitchers yeah. usually have Tommy John surgery for. So that's obviously a pretty serious injury and, and one that... Um, you know, we need to track his rehab. Uh, obviously, Ronald Acuna now just popped into my head as well. You know, a, a borderline first-round player this year. So uh, we'll see uh, what happens with those players and obviously what happens with this lockout. Apparently, minor league baseball is not affected. Opening day for the minor league season will be April 8th. So if nothing else, on April 8th, we'll be able to, I don't know, maybe stream like a double-A baseball game or something like that. It's got my first draft is going on. I, I had the itch. I had the urge. And I just couldn't hold back anymore. Uh, yes, I started my first off-season draft in early December. There's a lot that you have that you could say about it. Judgment being passed, it's perfectly fine. Uh, it is a slow draft. Everyone's allowed up to four hours per pick. It's a 15-team roto league, five by five, uh, and it is a draft and hold format. So basically, 50 rounds worth of players. 15 times uh, 50 times 15. That's I'm no math whiz, but that's a lot of players. Um, and in this format, there's no waivers, there's no trades. You just set your lineup each week. So I'm going to do a few of these throughout the offseason. You know, they're they're nice to pass the time and, and see which players are moving up and down draft boards and tracking ADP and all this fun stuff. I have made 10 picks so far, Scott. So 10 of my 50 picks. I had the 10th overall pick in this draft. And I started my draft with Bryce Harper. 
in the first round. Uh, the very next two picks after I took Harper were Ronald Acuna and Mookie Betts. And uh, my round rounds one through five picks were Harper, took Max Scherzer in the second round, Sandy Alcantara in the third round. Then I took Randy Rosarena, give myself some speed. Uh, Wander Franco here in the fifth round. So go East, AL East, NL East. Those are like all the players I drafted in the first five rounds. Uh, feels like I have a bit of everything, two aces. And, you know, I got uh, some some offensive statistics there as well. It's got to, you know, we went into the offseason saying, uh, you know, maybe I'm going to fade aces this year. And then this is what I did. Like, I, I don't know. They just, they seem like the best players at the time. So that's why I did what I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I this is 15 teams, you said? Yep. 15 team, 15 five by five. The Sandy Alcantara in, in round three might make sense for a 15 team league. I'm thinking more round four for a 12 team league. Right. But certainly there's nothing wrong with taking Scherzer in round two. Yeah. That, I mean, that uh, just seemed like, I don't know. In a 15 team league, he's probably like a borderline first round pick and he lasted all the way to pick 20. It seems pretty late for Scherzer. What I find most interesting about your picks here is you got Randy Arozarena in round four, Wander Franco in round five, Jose Altuve in round six. Mm-hmm. I might be inclined to flip those. <laughs> Altuve in round four, Franco in round five. He probably won't last till round five, but that, that might be closer to where I'd take him. And Arozarena in round six, again, in a 15-team league. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just interesting how the opinions can vary so much in that group of hitters. Like, this looks topsy-turvy to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, which maybe just means I'm going to have a, Lose, a lot of Jose Altuve. Maybe the consensus is down on him, I guess, because he's not much of a base stealer anymore. But, you know, I think maybe people sell out a little too hard for the stolen bases in general. Yeah. Uh, but uh, maybe the bigger takeaway is just that that range of hitters. And I talked about it when we did our first mock draft. Kind of, what? Did, how did I put it? Like round round three lasted for four rounds as far as the hitters went. Mm-hmm. It was like four rounds of round three hitters, and 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 so there's just going to be that, that's a stretch of the draft where you're going to have to lean on your um, your own preferences, I guess. Yeah. And once you get past that grouping of four rounds of, you know, round three players, you will notice that the the hitter pool, the elite hitter pool dries up really, really fast. So I'll just quickly bring up my round six through 10 picks that I made here. You mentioned Jose Altuve. Then I took Jordan Romano. Again, this is five by five roto. So you need saves. And obviously there's no waiver pickup. So like I'm going to be more aggressive drafting closers in this format. Hopefully, Jordan Romano remains the closer there. Uh, he is round... That was my round seven pick. Then Kyle Schwarber. That was just for you, Scotty. Uh, and then I took <laughs> Logan Gilbert as my SP3 and Reese Hoskins as my first baseman. Was looking at taking CJ Krohn uh, in this spot, but he actually went just before. Uh, we did take Reese Hoskins, uh, me and my my draft partner. Uh, we took Hoskins over Joey Votto, which I know is something you wouldn't do, Scott, but uh, I do like Reese Hoskins quite a bit. I've said that a little bit already this offseason. Um Hit 27 homers in 107 games last year. That's a 38 homer pace over 150 games. And if you look at my earlier hitters, I thought I needed some more power. So to get Schwarber and Reese Hoskins, I felt pretty good about that. But uh, my biggest takeaway so far, Scott, again, the elite hitter pool dries up fast. Do not play chicken with third base because in hindsight, I wish that I took Manny Machado in the second round, either that or I took Arenado in the sixth. So we were debating Altuve versus Arenado. And if I would have taken Arenado in the sixth, uh, Jorge Polanco was there for both my round seven and eight picks in a 15-team league. Like, I would have been perfectly fine with him as my second baseman. So, obviously, you know, this is hindsight, and that's why I do these drafts early, just to kind of, like, figure out the player pool and stuff. But, yeah, now, like, I don't have a third baseman, and I think the best available is Justin Turner. And it's just like, Mm. I don't. Yeah, no, there's a big drop-off after Arenado, unless you're really high on... You're really, you're really invested in a Bregman or Rendon bounce back, which has certainly happened. But so Bregman or, or, or Bre- a match happened. Bregman back. and Rendon both went before my round seven pick. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Did they go after Arenado? Yeah. So Arenado went, and then it was Rendon, and then it was Bregman. But I was yeah. kind of playing the ADP game because you know this early ADP uh, said that you know Rendon's a round eight pick. Someone took him in round six. So you know, it, yeah. Someone likes a player again. It's like. You just kind of take the players that you prefer in that middle round uh, range so far. So, yeah, like so, third base is bad, man. It, it really is. Yeah, I mean, if Arenado keeps lasting to the round six, 
I'll probably have a lot of Arenado because I think yeah. while it's clear he's diminished outside of Colorado, he's still worth a six-round pick, especially when you factor in position scarcity. So I, I think, uh, you know, as much as I like the value of Altuve there, I, I agree with you that you need to you need to shore up third base. And that first mock we did, which was a 12-team roto, I, I took uh, I took uh, Austin Riley at the end of round three, which was earlier than I anticipated having, because I was fearful of what would of running out of third baseman. Now I think Arenado also went written in round six in that draft. I wasn't counting on that to happen, mm-hmm. uh, but then it happened here in this fifteen team league too. So I think maybe Arenado is a name I'm going to have circled in round six if it keeps playing out this way. Yeah, and this was round six of a 15-teamer, Scott. So, right. you know, maybe even in a 12-team league, you might be able to even get him in the seventh or or eighth round uh, if that's how, you know, the consensus is kind of forming around Nolan Arenado. And I realize many people listening to this podcast play in 10-team leagues and 12-team leagues. Uh, so yeah. I understand, like, 15-team, like, what I'm saying doesn't necessarily 15. translate, yeah. but we do have some... We're going to do a 12-team mock draft next week, and, and we'll talk all about it, so... Uh, that yeah, would be more would, relatable. I actually have, have polled my Twitter following, which there's a lot of crossover. You know, the majority of people who follow me on Twitter do so because of the podcast. Uh, and the number who play in 15 teams or deeper is very small. Yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine that that is the case. Uh, the last point I wanted to make here, Scott, I don't know if you noticed this while ranking starting pitchers. I have not started the ranking process myself yet, which, all right, we're getting a little bit late here. Let's let's start it up, Frank. Um, mid-tier starting pitcher. Once you get past the top 25 or 30, it kind of feels like there's just one big blob. And, and not that every pitcher is necessarily the same because they all do different things. Like, I noticed there's some innings eaters and like a Framber Valdez and a Marcus Stroman. Like, you, you know what you're going to get out of those guys. You know, there's some upside arms and like a Logan Gilbert, someone I do like quite a bit, a Dylan Cease, someone like that as well. But it just kind of feels like no one differentiates himself or like no one excels in that group. No one leads the tier. It just seems like there's a lot of like... You're not sure who to draft first. Taking into account upside, downside, assurance. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you. We talked about that a little when we were doing the the starting pitcher review slash preview. I marked that that cutoff at 30 at 30 is where I have Justin Verlander who's a difficult player to rank and usually I stick difficult players to rank at the end of tiers like that so Justin Verlander is my number 30 pitcher and after that 31 who for me is Carlos Rodon to 55 who for me is Patrick Sandoval I I feel like you could rank them in almost any order and and not get much argument for me. Yeah. So why not just wait and take whoever falls the latest out of that group, right? Well, I was I was actually going to ask you in light of that thinking. Logan Gilbert is my number fifty three starting pitcher, so he's in that range. He's toward the end of that range, number fifty three of fifty five. Yep. And took him as your fourth starting pitcher here in round third. Third starting pitcher. Third third starting pitcher in round nine. Yes. Uh, in a 15-team league. So I'm, I'm. do you happen to remember what number starting pitcher he was off the board in this draft? Number starting pitcher, I wouldn't be able to tell you that, um, but I can give you some players he went around. So drafted just ahead of him was Eduardo Rodriguez. Someone must have really liked him. Uh, Lance McCullers, Adam Wainwright, and Justin Verlander, who went in round eight, who oh gosh, I did I did like quite a bit, but he just uh, he didn't make it back to me. So uh, that's interesting, yeah, because I have um, I have McCullers. Where do I have McCullers? Where is he? Doing a little control left search here. Okay, I have I have McCullers thirty six, so he's on the higher end of that thirty one to fifty five range. I have right. Adam Wainwright forty fifth, so he's right in the middle, both both ahead of Logan Gilbert. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that kind of speaks to that because I, I look here at Logan Gilbert, round nine. Wow. Starting yep. pitcher gets ugly fast in a 15-team league. But it, it seems like that was just, you know, you kind of leaning into your preference, which everybody's going to be doing in that range of starting pitchers. Yeah, and, and I took uh, Logan Gilbert just ahead of Nathan Avaldi and uh, Framber Valdez, who went after after I took him. Yep. So my thinking yeah, both was... Are that, both are in that range too. Framber Valdez, 38th for me. Avaldi, 42nd. Uh, my thinking was taking Logan Gilbert, who 
you know, maybe the Mariners don't let him go all the way next year yet as like a full on workhorse and maybe pairing him with someone who eats innings, you know, later on, like a Marcus Stroman or someone like that. So that's the plan. He's my SP three, which you know, he's probably not ideal as an SP three, but I think when you have Scherzer and Alcantara, you know, you can wait a little bit longer for your SP three, SP four, SP five. So that's the thinking as of now, uh, I'll keep everyone updated what happens with this draft. Uh, we mentioned Justin Verlander, Scott, let's just jump right into the news and notes here. Uh, oddly enough, this was like pretty interesting, came out of nowhere. Uh, once the lockout started, the Astros did not make the re-signing of Justin Verlander official uh, prior to the lockout. So he's technically still a free agent. And Ken Rosenthal wrote that the, quote, logical conclusion is that an issue arose with Verlander's physical. So nothing, I mean, it's speculation. Nothing has like confirmed that or denied it. But <laughs> I thought it was pretty interesting that, you know, we this deal didn't get done. Yeah, it's 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 not officially done. Of course, when when it's reported that there's an agreement, it's never officially done, and it almost always gets officially done. So we kind of just roll with it. Uh, but but sometimes those agreements end up being negated and and are never finalized. That's not where this one is. It's it's in limbo. So I'm not ready to say it's fallen through. The deal's fallen through. Verlander won't be an Astro next year, but. That is that is at least a remote possibility. There's a chance. There's still a chance for my Yankees to sign him. <laughs> we definitely yeah. could use some Justin Verlander. What, what, but what showed up on the physical if it does fall through? Uh, that is a good question. Uh, by the way, you mentioned Carlos Rodon. You have him at SP31. Uh, in that in this round ten where I'm at, he he was he hasn't been drafted yet. So yeah, people are scared. People are scared. Uh, understandably, and I, you know, I, I look at just the numbers he put up and, and, you know, even, even with the velocity issues late in the season, the sort of sporadic turns in the rotation, his numbers during that stretch were good. His overall numbers were amazing. Yeah. Like if, if, if there weren't those health concerns for, for Carlos Rodon, he'd probably be a top 15 pitcher. Next oh yeah. Year. So no doubt I'm, about that. I'm reluctant yeah. to drop him too much in the rankings. Uh, but that's why I consider Carlos Rodon at the top of that. Blob, within that blob, at the top of that blob, but within that blob, because if somebody ranked him 51st instead of 31st, okay, I get it. Yeah, uh, we did talk about this next move on Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, but not on this podcast because it came out so late. Uh, we just didn't have the opportunity. Hunter Renfro was traded to the Milwaukee Brewers for Jackie Bradley and two prospects, Alex Benellis and David Hamilton. Last year, Hunter Renfro, last season rather, uh, he finished as the outfielder 19 in 5x5 Roto and with 3.0 fantasy points per game, the same amount same amount as Randy Rosarena and Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, it was a really good year, Scott, for Hunter Renfro now moving over to a, a very good park to hit in still there in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. I would argue maybe Boston is better because of the mm -hmm. green monster for right-handed power, but I think it's still really good regardless. Yeah, I mean, just in terms of what the numbers say, the Brewers Stadium. I forget what it's officially called now. Um, yeah, it's not Miller Park anymore, right? No, no, it's not. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's one of the most hitter hitter friendly, more so than Fenway Park, which actually overall isn't that hitter friendly. But of course, the odd dimensions uh, mm -hmm. make it a, a little harder to gauge. But yeah, Miller Park has obviously made some hitters over the years or what was formerly known as Miller Park, has made some hitter of, hitters over the years. I feel like Hunter Renfro, having just had that breakout season, I don't know that there's that much more for him to tap into, but it it gives me more confidence drafting him as a top 40 outfielder, I think I have him. Yeah, um, he's just kind of vanilla, you know? I, I like If I'm projecting him 250, 25 to 30 homers, maybe okay counting stats in that lineup, but, you know, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, the biggest key to his breakout last year was it's really cut down on the strikeouts. It was oh yeah, like a 22% rate, which mm -hmm. is good. It's a good strikeout rate. Yep, StatCast. Keep that up in Miller Park, in the park formerly known as Miller Park. <laughs> that's um, that's American Family Field, by the way. American Scott. Family Field. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of Great American Ballpark, which also is not the name of where the Reds play, right? I think it. I think it still is. 
Oh, we are. Uh, we're doing a great job. We're, here. we're giving. <laughs> we're handing out all kinds of yeah. It's still endorsements that haven't been paid for. <laughs> it's still great American ballpark in Cincinnati. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned that the strikeout rate for Renfro was really what helped. And um, StatCast really liked him as a power hitter. 84th percentile in expected slugging, 88th percentile in barrel rate. We will talk about a few of those analytics a little bit later on and explain what they mean exactly. Uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. penciled in as the starting center fielder for the Red Sox as of now with Jaron Duran in left field. So maybe uh, Duran can get another opportunity here with the Red Sox. Uh, John Heyman reporting that the Mariners, Astros, and Red Sox all have interest in Trevor's story. So uh, those would be mm, Seattle, not great. Houston, Boston, pretty good landing spots for a story if that can happen. Uh, by the way, during the lockout, obviously teams cannot sign or trade players, but um, I guess we could still have reported interest. Uh, Lance McCullers should be able to start throwing in about a month. He's trained his right forearm in the ALDS and has dealt with a lot of arm trouble in his career. So uh, another one where can't rehab with his team anymore, but I'm sure he'll find a way to rehab anyway. According to reports from the Boston Sports Journal, the Red Sox, Yankees, and Blue Jays have been the most aggressive on Japanese outfielder Seiya Suzuki who hit 321 with 38 homers and nine steals in Japan this past season. His early ADP is 254.94. So kind of an afterthought as of now, but uh, yeah, like if he were to sign with any of those lineups, then I'm sure people would get pretty excited about one Seiya Suzuki. Last but not least, this is not really uh, fantasy related, Scott, but maybe you have some opinions about Gil Hodges, Jim Cott, Mini Mignoso, Antonio Oliva, who were elected to the MLB Hall of Fame by the Golden Days Era Committee. Did not know what that was before I heard about all this happening. Uh, Bud Fowler and Buck O'Neill were also inducted by the Early Baseball Era Committee. Uh, the Early Baseball Era Committee considered candidates who made their contributions to baseball prior to 1950. The Golden Days Era Committee considered candidates from 1950 to 1969. Scott, did you know what either of those things were before two days ago? I, I think that there used to be something called the Veterans Committee, right? And and I think maybe it broke into these smaller factions. Okay. I, I don't know. I don't know for sure, to be honest with you. I know that there is, there are other groups beyond the Baseball Writers Association of America that can vote players into the Hall of Fame after their time on the Baseball Writers Association of America's ballot has expired. Um, now, if you had asked me, had if if you had asked me going into this news if Gil Hodges, Jim Cott, Minnie Mignoso, Antonio Oliva were already in the Hall of Fame. I could not have told you with <laughs> great certainty. They they're all names I've heard before, so I might have assumed they were already in. I, I don't I'm not a great baseball historian Me neither. prior to like 1990s. Basically from the time I started following baseball to the present. You know, that you can't surprise me with too many names. But before that, I don't know a ton. I don't know a ton. I'm, I'm actually a little uh, a little ashamed of my lack of knowledge from pre-1990, 1990, let's say. Yeah. We, look, we're in the same boat there, Scott, because I, really anything... Like, I know the names from the 90s and obviously, like, the early 2000s that was, you know steroid era and a very popular era of baseball. Uh, but really like, I don't know, 2005 to 2010. I mean, that's when I like really got into it. And then obviously from 2010 on, like it's basically all I've done, but, uh, yeah, like baseball historian, I am not a quick programming update. We will have another pod, uh, tomorrow instead of Thursday this week. I've got some tickets, uh, to wrestling. Go, go with my brother to see some uh, some wrestling. So uh, we will push our podcast up a little bit earlier. Justin Mason from Fangraphs and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast joining us for some rankings debates, Scotty. He's he's already adjusted his rankings twice, he told me. So fine-tuning them, and uh, we will have the opportunity to debate that on tomorrow's podcast. So let's take a quick break. When we return, Fantasy Baseball 101 here on Fantasy Baseball Today.
Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more for way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to buy now. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. Nothing beats a weekend away with the family in the great outdoors, whether it's camping, hiking, river rafting, or anything in between. With third-row seating, nobody is left out. The entire family can experience the thrill together, and nobody wants a dead phone. Available dual wireless charging pads make it so nobody gets stuck, and we can check our fantasy baseball teams together. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. All right, so let's jump right in. Fantasy Baseball 101. And what we're going to do for this is, first and foremost, we're going to look at the, the main three formats of Fantasy Baseball, kind of explain them, rank them in terms of our preference, and then we'll get into some of the advanced statistics, analytics, why we use them, what they mean, uh, and all that fun stuff. But let's start with Roto, also known as Rotisserie or 5x5. Five five. Uh, there's also head-to-head points and head-to-head categories, but Roto is the traditional way to play fantasy baseball. Uh, I would say the first uh, fantasy baseball leagues were this format, the Rotisserie format. Uh, and in this format, there are usually five hitting categories and five pitching categories. Those are batting average, home runs, run scored, RBI, stolen bases for hitting, and then ERA, whip, wins, strikeouts, and saves for pitching. You can customize these to be whatever you want them to be. Some people like to use OBP or OPS instead of batting average or saves plus holds instead of saves. Quality starts instead of wins, though... I don't know, like, we're not really getting as many quality starts as we once were, so I don't know how much sense that makes anymore either. Uh, In this format, there is no head-to-head element whatsoever. You are not playing against a singular person on any given week. You are playing against everybody every week, and uh, basically you just accrue as many stats as you can all season long. You want to rank as high in each of those statistics as you possibly can. Uh, You want to focus on a balanced roster. Ideally, you don't want to punt any categories. Scott, would you say that that is a fair assessment of Roto, Rotisserie, anything else you'd like to add about that format? So the thing to really stress about Roto or 5x5, you know, any any category, any non-head-to-head category format like that is that um, there are diminishing returns for your team's performance in each specific category because you can have you can have all the home runs in the world but the most points you can get from your home run you can have every home run hit in the majors that year but the most points you can get from that home run category is 12 assuming you're in a 12 team league if it's 15 you, team league you could get 15 points but you know it's just the number of points you get from that category is where your team ranks in that category uh, so you, yeah, you have to you have to balance the categories. Um, you can't. There, there is such a thing as punting, where you maybe completely neglect a category, and and you can get away with it if your team's strong enough in the others. But you probably just one category you can get away with being really weak and and still still win the league. Um, but you know, the idea is to finish in a twelve team league about fourth and everything. If you can if you can manage that, of course it's never going to work out that you're exactly fourth and everything. Uh, but that would add up to fourth and everything would add up. Let's see. Nine points times 10, 90 points, 90 points is usually going to be enough to win you a 12 team Roto league. So that's, that's one way to think about it. Uh, yeah, I'm actually looking at our Memorial magazine league from this past season. And, uh, Greg Lathrop won it with 92 total points, uh, I'm not going to say where you finished, Scott. Uh, I finished fourth in this league. I was so bad for like majority of the seasons. Uh, Adam would always text me and mess with me and be like, this is the worst Roto team I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and then 
lo and behold, I passed him. I finished fourth. So <laughs> nice little bounce back there. Uh, but yeah, I, that's yeah. what you want to aim to do. You want to finish top four in each category. So again, like building out a balanced roster, if you finish last in one category, you need to finish in third place or better in all of the other nine categories. So that's like a way to think about it. But again, mm-hmm. uh, balance is, is really the way that you want to go in the Roto slash five by five rotisserie format. Head to head points. This is the format that is most like fantasy football. And I think it's the easiest to pick up if you're trying to play fantasy baseball for the first time. Uh, You earn fantasy points for different stats. For example, you get one fantasy point per single, two fantasy points per double, so on and so forth there. Uh, You get one point per RBI, one point per run scored, two points for a stolen base. For pitching, you get one point per out recorded, uh, half a point per strikeout, and you get bonus points for... Uh, quality starts, for example, gives you three points. You get seven points for a win. Uh, you also get minus five points for a loss. And you can customize these point values to be whatever you want. So that's just the basic scoring format here on CBS. Uh, if if you think that pitching is awarded too many points, then you can maybe lower a win to five points or three points or something like that, or just get rid of quality starts, whatever you want to do or uh Make it less than one point per out, something like that. So, like you could just customize it to be uh, whatever you want it to be. Though pitching has uh, been known to be pretty dominant in this format. Uh, we'll talk about that a bunch before draft season, I am sure. Scott, anything that you'd like to add on the head-to-head points format? Yeah, just that it. I mean, it's it's it kind of came about because of fantasy football. It's it's based on fantasy football scoring. And it's more accessible to people who've played fantasy football for a long time, but maybe haven't transitioned over to fantasy baseball yet. I happen to prefer it. It's what I started with, but there are, there are other reasons I prefer it. Um, you know, the idea that the example I gave in Roto, you could have every home run hit in the majors for that year and, and, and only get 12 points from home runs. Well, that doesn't matter in, in head-to-head points leagues. I mean, a home run is always worth the number of points it's worth. So you, you can construct your lineup um, in a variety of different ways. You're able to reward all those stats that aren't accounted for in a Roto League, like doubles and triples and walks and strikeouts. Uh, and, and so, you know, you get you get different hitters who pop because of that. And I, I just think it, I think it gives a fairer assessment of players overall, and it's not as, um, you know, there, there's not such a narrow path to victory either. Of course, you have the head-to-head, head-to-head aspect, which keeps people interested deeper into the year because, you know, anybody who makes playoffs has a chance. So there, there are a lot of points in its favor. But for fantasy baseball purposes, it's not the traditional format. And there do, there is, um, there's plenty of strategy to it. Of course, but there isn't there isn't that balancing act that you get in Roto League that some people really enjoy. I, I don't think I don't think there's much it really represents real baseball in any meaningful way, that balance that you get in Roto Leagues, but some people just enjoy that that juggling act and, and miss it when they play in head to head points leagues. Let's be completely honest, Scott. Roto fantasy baseball is boring. It is not <laughs> fun. It's not the fun way to play fantasy baseball. Like wow. completely Everyone, that's, that's look, I, I don't want to characterize it that way. That's a little harsh. It's it's preference. I understand, it, but <laughs> I, I look if relative. If you're, if you're losing, like it's it's easier to lose interest in roto, yes, because only the top team at the end of the season, it, only that counts for anything. There's no playoffs, so you can't be fighting for sixth place or something in uh, in early August. Uh, you know, it, it keeps. Head-to-head keeps more of the league interested for longer. Yes. But, yeah, I mean, if you are in one of those top three teams in a close race in a Roto League, it's still it's still pl- plenty interesting in the end, at sure. the end of the season, when those, uh, you know, when you're fighting for that top spot. But, obviously, not as many teams are involved in that. And calling it boring. Look, all right, you're right, Scott. It was a little harsh. I, that's relative to head-to-head. I think, for me, I'm with you. Like, my... My preference is head-to-head points. Actually, a head-to-head points salary cap league, like that's my favorite. You know, go out and get whatever players you want. 
It's my favorite way to play it. That that's the format that Tout Wars is, and I guess there's no surprise why you know I per I performed well in it this past season. Uh, but yeah, I just think head to head points relative to Roto. Uh, you know, I don't want any fantasy baseball purists coming for my head or anything, <laughs> and you know, yelling at me. Uh, but I do think head to head points is more fun overall. I, I do. Uh, I Roto. do. I I can't really imagine having a Roto league as your only fantasy baseball league i feel like you'd be losing a lot of the experience and i i've never had that i've never known that because i started as a head-to-head points player and you know picked up other formats as i went along from there so i've never known just oh my roto team this is my fantasy baseball team for the year and whatever happens happens yeah that, that seems like it would be lacking something and you know i i brought up the points that you made about Roto, I brought them up a while ago to Nando Defino, who used to be on this podcast. Actually, fun story. I I met up with Nando last Friday. We were in the city, had a bunch of like escapades. It, you know, it was it was a fun time. Uh, but I brought I'm like Nando, a walk doesn't matter in Roto, a double doesn't matter more than a single in Roto, uh, a triple doesn't matter. He's like, what are you talking about? You're still getting on base. You hit a double, you're more likely to score a run. You're more likely to score some uh, you know, drive someone in. Yeah, in theory, that's right. But like it in the grand scheme of things, like if you have a player on the, let's just say, I don't know, the Pirates who hits a lot of doubles might not really matter. You know, like you're, you might not score a lot of runs. You might not get a lot of RBIs. So, uh, yeah, that was always my argument against him whenever uh, he would say that. But yeah, alas. I, I've had similar discussions with Nando Tofino <laughs> on this very podcast. If you want to dig up the archives. Ooh, maybe uh, I, I would say maybe I'll look into that. But there's a lot going on this time of year. <laughs> Football, baseball. We, we've got some stuff. Uh, head to head categories. That's the last main format. Uh, this is basically a hybrid between the previous two formats that we've talked about thus far. Uh, you face one opponent each week instead of earning fantasy points for what your players do. Uh, you and your opponents accumulate stats in each of the 10 categories, which I mentioned earlier, or really however many categories you want to play with, 12, 14, 8, you really play with as many as you want to. Uh, if you have more home runs than your opponent by the end of that weekly scoring period, then you win that category. This is where things get a little bit interesting in head-to-head categories because there are two different ways to track standings in this format. Say you win six categories and you lose four against your opponent. You can either count those as one weekly win or you can set it up where your weekly score keeps adding to your record each and every week. So, for example, you win six to four in week one, you lose four to six in week two. Your record after the first two weeks is now 10 and 10, which I actually prefer. I I like playing it out. Otherwise, it would be one and one if you set it up the other way. Yep. Um, So, yeah, Scott, I mean, this is the format where, like, you can set it up with different categories and you can kind of get crazy with it and come up with different strategies. And we've talked about the Marmol strategy using a bunch of relievers. And, you know, this is where you can really show off your creativity in in terms of strategies. Yeah, some people have described head-to-head categories as the best of both worlds. I kind of feel like it's the worst of both worlds. (laughs) I agree with you. To be honest. It's 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 my least favorite of the three. And I, I think the biggest flaw for head-to-head categories is that, you know, the ratio stats that batting average, ERA, and whip, the ones that aren't just a counting number, it's it's a ratio instead. And those can get skewed pretty heavily in the sample of only one week. Mm-hmm. And it can you know, you could you could draft um uh you know, you could draft a really strong pitching staff. Maybe even go Marmol strategy with relievers. I, I'm going to win ERA and WHIP every week, and the timing of when one particular pitcher gets blasted makes it so that doesn't happen. And and I I understand you could say, oh well, that's the same thing in head-to-head points. A p- pitcher got blasted when you weren't expecting it, and he scored negative two points instead of twenty five or whatever. But it feels like the consequences are much harsher in a head-to-head categories league, just the way the math works out. This is just my experience. I mean, I haven't actually studied it, but um, I find it's more frustrating uh, dealing with those outlier performances over a one-week period when the scoring is categories instead of points. So that that's my biggest frustration with head-to-head categories leagues. I think if you're going to go head-to-head... I would say just go points, but you know, not everybody, not everybody does. So you're going head to head points, roto, head to head categories in order of your preference. Yep. 
Same. All right, Scott. So uh, we're on we're on the same page there uh, when it comes to the formats. And again, like as we do specific mock drafts for each of these, we'll talk more about strategy and and what our strategies are in those specific formats. The mock draft that we're doing next week is going to be a head to head points mock. The first one we did last month was a roto mock. So uh, don't worry. we've got a lot of mock drafts coming this off season. No, there is definitely no shortage there. Let's explain some stats, Scott, and some analytics that we like to use. If you're a faithful listener to this podcast, or I would say really any fantasy baseball podcast, you probably have heard of FIP, XFIP, Sierra, average exit velocity, expected batting average, WOBA, XWOBA. There are so many. There are a lot of different uh, numbers and analytics to use in baseball nowadays, and I understand why it can be confusing or maybe even intimidating at times for people who maybe haven't used those before or, or just seen them. Uh, it, it can definitely get confusing. I, I, I understand that. But I think really, Scott, the reason why we use these so much is because they're just tools. They, they add context. They add description to the surface numbers. So you know, when we're talking about you know, why a specific player is batting 400 over the first month of the season, well, we can look into things like BABIP, which is batting average on balls in play, or uh, the way that their hits are scattered, whether it's line drives or ground balls or fly balls, or uh, we can use average exit velocity and expected batting average from StatCast to just add context and tell us, you know, is this legit? Why is this legit? Uh, and I think that that's on the surface, just like the easiest way to, to describe like why we use as many numbers as we do, obviously. Yeah, and... And I will say that I never incorporate any advanced stat into my analysis, really, unless I'm I'm convinced that it means something, and then I know what it means. So you will always see, you will always find other analysts that that start working with the stat before I do. I'll, I'll always be a little late to the party as far as that goes, because I, I don't want to use it just for the sake of using it. You know, that's just that's. That's being inaccessible for no good reason because <laughs> it is it is hard to keep up with it. It's it's hard for me even to keep up with it. Um, when I first started, the idea of an advanced stat was OPS. Like that was about as advanced as anybody <laughs> got in fantasy analysis. I started. I, I was heavy into walk rate and strikeout rate when I first started writing about fantasy baseball, and I remember I got profiled as as like an advanced analytics guy because of that, <laughs> um, which is kind of funny to think about now. Just how much has come along in such a short period of time. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I understand, you know, it's, it's always that, that, um, that tightrope walk with your audience, you know, you don't, you don't want to talk over them, but you don't want to talk under them either. At some point, at some point we, we eventually get to a place with the stat where you got to kind of just come along for the ride because we've explained it so many times that there, there gets to a point where we can't explain it every time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this this can hopefully help people who who weren't there from the beginning catch up. Yeah. And, and that's exactly why we're doing this again. I asked on Facebook, there's a lot of people said they want to hear, you know, more about beginner stuff, you know, the different formats and, and what all these different things mean. Uh, let's start on the pitching side, Scott, because we know ERA and whip. We talk about that a lot. We reference K per nine walks per nine, which is pretty obvious. It's you know, how many strikeouts would a pitcher have per nine innings pitched? How many walks would a pitcher have per nine innings pitched? Uh, but I, I I realized that over the past couple of years, you know, more people have transitioned, analysts rather, have transi- transitioned into K percentage and walk percentage. Apparently, uh, it's more accurate than uh, than K per nine, walk per nine. I, I still like K per nine and walk per nine quite a bit. But yeah, let's just it's talk... an accessibility versus accuracy thing, yeah. Yeah, uh, let's just start with all the different ERA estimators because... Again, FIP, XFIP. We're going to explain what all of them mean. Uh, hmm. Should I present one, Scott, and then you talk about that one? Or should I just present all of them and then you could talk about all of them? Because I have like each definition here. What do you think is the best way to go about it? Uh, I, well, let's, let's, let's try one at a time. Okay. And I'll contrast as we go on. So we'll start with FIP, which is Fielding Independent Pitching. And these definitions come via MLB.com. FIP is similar to ERA, but it focuses solely on the events a pitcher has the most control over. Strikeouts, unintentional walks, hit by pitches, and home runs. It entirely removes results on balls hit into the field of play. So, 
If a player has a high BABIP, batting average on balls in play, his FIP will be lower than his ERA. And where you can where you can see FIP and ERA differences are with pitchers that have bad defense behind them. So and vice versa. Or good. Yeah. So you could see a pitcher that has a lower ERA than his FIP. Someone like you know Kyle Hendricks for years comes to mind because the Cubs defense was so good year in and year out. So uh, and I'm sure there's plenty of examples the other way. But that's FIP, Scott. Yes. And generally, the way we use FIP and in, in fantasy analysis isn't so focused on that. It's, you know, we're, we're, looking, we're looking to predict what a pitcher's numbers could be based on the factors most within his control, the strikeouts, the walks, the home runs, mainly. Um, and, you know, we're, we're kind of using it to gauge luck. Okay, if his FIP is much lower than his ERA, chances are he's had some bad luck. Now, you do have to account for the defense when you're considering that. But uh, over time, the ERA, if as long as the walk strikeouts and home run rates hold, which, you know, big if. But if they do, over time, the ERA is going to come closer to the FIP. Now, I used to lean on FIP a lot more than I do. I've transitioned more to XFIP. With the during the juice ball era, basically, I transitioned more to XFIP because XFIP the the easy explanation for XFIP is that instead of home runs in the FIP formula, it puts fly balls in the FIP formula instead. And during the juice ball era, as home runs were being hit so easily um, by such light hitters to the point that basically every fly ball was at risk of becoming a home run just in mm-hmm. a broad sense. So I thought it made more sense to, to, to look at XFIP instead, particularly for the reasons we use it to predict what a pitcher pitcher's ERA is eventually going to be if his current indicators hold. Uh, and, and it, you know, I, I still think XFIP is, is probably a, a, a better judge of that than FIP, but obviously with, with the way, the ball has changed and batted ball tendencies are changing because of that. I, I could see switching more back to FIP if it if things play out, continue to play out like they did in 2021. Yes. And I think one of the biggest takeaways for trying to use these ERA estimators, because it can be a slippery slope at times, it is again reminding people that these are these are descriptive stats. They're not predictive. We're trying to use them to predict the future, but it's it only really works out that way if a pitcher continues doing exactly what they've done to this point, which you mentioned yep. is holding on to their strikeout rate and their walk rate and, and th- those factors staying the same. Those need to remain the same moving forward for that ERA to get closer to these ERA estimators. So that's like a really important factor. Like, yep. there's a chance it's- that after, you know, we have the sample of 10 starts, Maybe after those 10 starts, a pitcher legitimately starts pitching worse and his strikeouts come down and his walks go up. In that case, he's probably earning that bad ERA that he's that he has after that point, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, up to a point, it makes sense. I mean, if, if, if a pitcher had infinite innings, I would still bet on him coming close to his ex-fip. Um, but at some point the season ends, obviously at some point the career ends and it, the numbers in, are what they are. Uh, so it's kind of a theoretical exercise in that way. But yeah, I mean, they're more predict. It's better than just using ER, current ERA to predict future ERA. That is correct. It's, is looking at the factors a pitcher has more direct control over and predicting future ERA based on that. And And generally, I do agree with what you said about if a pitcher has infinite innings. But there, there are some outliers, Scott. Like, sure, Andrew Heaney is—he's just bad, right? Like, his his <laughs> xFIP is always going to be lower than his ERA because his home run to fly ball ratio is so high. For someone like Andrew Heaney, he just gives up a lot of home runs, and like we have enough of a sample size now where we can say his home run to fly ball ratio is always going to be higher than league average, unless he changes something, well, which to this point. He has not figured out how to change. The Dodgers are willing to bet otherwise. Oh, and God. <laughs> I'm unwilling to bet against the Dodgers. So oh, otherwise, Scott, don't I might do have this. agreed with you. Don't do this, Scott. Don't do this. Uh, uh, the, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not ready to 
pass judgment on Heaney yet. All right. All right. A few more ERA indicators that I'll quickly mention. Uh, per MLB.com, this is Sierra, which is Skill Interactive ERA, quantifies a pitcher's performance by trying to eliminate factors the pitcher cannot control by himself. But unlike a stat such as XFIP, Sierra considers balls in play and adjusts for the type of ball in play. So if a pitcher has a high XFIP, but has also induced a high proportion of grounders and pop-ups, instead of line drives, his Sierra will be lower than his XFIP. Technically, Sierra is is the best of the three, Scott, because like it it takes XFIP and, and just builds off of it. So I, I've, I've gravitated yeah. more towards Sierra and expected ERA over the past couple of seasons myself. Yeah, I, I just, I think it might be a little too granular because it, 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 for prediction purposes, right? Yeah. Not for ex, explanatory purposes of what happened. It's a fine line between a pop-up and a home run at times. Yeah. And I, I, I think maybe Sierra overemphasizes that for prediction purposes again. Okay. I don't use Sierra much at all. Okay. The results tend to be a lot like XFIP. Those two numbers for most pitchers are very similar, XFIP and Sierra. Occasionally, you'll see one that's maybe half a run difference, uh, but very rarely. And all of these that we're talking about, you can find over at Fangraphs.com, FIP, XFIP, Sierra, and they have included the Statcast numbers now as well. But uh, specifically, if you're like if you go if you go to BaseballSavant.com, that's where you can find like a plethora of different Statcast um, data. And if we're talking about Statcast XERA is their main ERA predictor, which uh, basically tells you what a pitcher's ERA should be based on the quality of contact that he's allowed. There's like more to it than that, but that's kind of like the gist yeah. of it. So. Well, that's that's true for basically all the stat cast stats. So most of, most of the X stats, the stats with an X in front of them, obviously not XFIP. X just stands for expected in the, uh, in the analytics world. But a lot of those X stats that we cite, XBA, XSlug, X Woba, those come from Statcast, and all of the Statcast stats are based on this this video system they've designed where that that gives a probability for every batted ball. Uh, and I've found, you know, specifically XERA of these ERA estimators, I've found that it's the most accurate at explaining what's already happened. Okay. But my experience with XERA is that it's not particularly accurate, accurate at explaining what's to come. Uh, I still trust XFIP for more than that. And I, I could have my mind changed on that if somebody has compelling research. But that my experience with XERA is really good at matching ERA, not the best at predicting ERA. Uh, a few other pitching stats that I like to use on fan graphs, swinging strike rate, K minus walk percentage, Scott, I know you use swinging strike rate quite a bit as well. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Obviously, the pitchers that generate swings and misses, it helps with predicting strikeouts and, and causing strikeouts to happen. So it's my it's probably my favorite pitcher stat. Yeah. <laughs> K minus walk percentage. I've really come around on though the past couple of years, which, you know, it's it's obvious, right? Like it's it's K to walk ratio, but it's in percentage form. So obviously a higher K K minus walk percentage is is better, um, and it's it's generally uh, pretty predictive for for pitcher performance. On the hitter side of things, we don't have much time left. Five minutes here, but uh, I'll talk about what I like to use on fan graphs. Let's, let's just start with fan graphs, rather. That's where you you can find specific batted ball percentages, line drive rate, ground ball rate, fly ball rate, hard hit percentage, home run to fly ball ratio, and again, each of these help us tell a hitter's story. A uh, story. So. If they're hitting the ball hard and hitting the ball in the air quite a bit, they have a lower home run to fly ball ratio than their career more, their career mark. That tells us that they are likely due for regression uh, in terms of, you know, yes, more of those fly balls are going to start to go out. If they, again, if they continue to hit the ball the way that they have to this point. Again, it's not, it's, it's not necessarily predictive unless they keep hitting the ball that way. So those are the things that I like to look at over on Fangraphs, Scott. Yeah, that's still... I, I still look at those a lot on Fangraphs, too. Now, those predate StatCast, and StatCast has its own line drive, ground ball, fly ball percentages that sometimes look quite a bit different from what's on <laughs> yeah. Fangraphs. And I don't, know if, I don't know if that's because their standards for what a line drive is versus a fly ball are, are different. 
I know they my, come from two different data sources. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. do. And, and StatCast is obviously the same one, the camera system that calculates probability based on how hard the ball was hit, uh, what the trajectory was, and where it lands on the field. So my hunch is that StatCast is probably more accurate just because that seems to be the way things go. But I, I tend to use I tend to use Fangraphs, Fangraphs measurements of that more just because I'm I'm more familiar with it, maybe maybe a little resistant to change, maybe a little unwilling to to recalibrate uh, what my idea of a good line drive rate is versus a good ground ball rate. And I don't really feel like Fangraphs has steered me wrong with that. So I, I tend to look at that more still. But um, I, I'm less inclined to site-specific numbers now because of that disparity. Like, this guy's a 55 percent ground balls you wouldn't think would be maybe it's really more line drives this guy has a 25 percent line drive rate you know i might just say he has a high line drive rate yeah his, his high drive his line drive rate is comparable to this player which makes for easier listening anyway than throwing out specific numbers yeah on fan graphs another popular all-encompassing hitter metric is woba which is also known as weighted on base average it's similar to on base percentage but instead it takes into account how a player got on base it adds more weight to things like home runs and triples which makes sense obviously they're more valuable to hit home runs and triples than uh singles and walks yeah we don't we Kind of use Woba. I feel like we still use OPS quite a bit. Um, what was probably more accurate, but I, I, I still do like OPS. It's, I feel yeah. like the the classic fantasy baseball podcast listener, maybe I'm just making this up, but I feel like they probably prefer OPS as well. I don't know. Yeah, I, I feel I, I don't hear Woba much. I know Heath was kind of into it. Um, but, it's a great stat. Know. Like, don't get me wrong. It's, it's, it's really good. So not to disparage it or anything. Yeah, and the fact that it does it incorporate stolen bases as well? I don't think that Woba does. It doesn't look like in this description here it does. I I was led to believe it does. Clearly I haven't worked with Woba that much. I haven't felt like no. it was necessary to. Fangraphs implementation of Woba doesn't include stolen bases. Okay. Yeah. Uh quickly on the statcast side of things which is just growing in popularity year over year, and rightfully so. I mean, this is probably the most accurate data that we have. I think that we're still learning more about it, but based on everything that you've said, Scott, like literal cameras in stadiums that are telling us, based on how this ball was hit, this is how often it would it would fall for a hit. It doesn't always happen that way. Like, we know, like, baseball's a very unpredictable yeah. sport. Like some probability. I mean, yeah, someone can hit a, a 110 mile per hour line drive. If it's right at the center fielder, it's right at the center fielder. Like that's, that's just, it is what it is. Um, but you can go to any player's StatCast page over on baseballsavant.com and, and you could find all of this data that we talk about constantly. And we don't have enough time here to explain each one of them, but a lot of them are, I would say kind of straightforward, right? Like average exit velocity is how hard you hit the ball on average, um, how hard it's coming off the bat. Max exit velocity, you know, your hardest hit in terms of exit velocity all season long, that's your max exit velocity. And then expected batting average, expected, expected slugging percentage, expected WOBA, those are all just based on your quality of contact. So again, mm -hmm. that, that just goes back to like everything else that we've said. I don't know if there's anything that you'd like to add on the uh, StatCast yes, hitter side. There of is. Sneak sneak peek into what will be a change in my analysis that you, you've probably already heard if you listen to every episode. In the past, I haven't focused that much on exit velocity for hitters, cited on occasion. But the reason for that is because I, th I feel like that's that's a measure of skill, exit velocity, Average exit velocity, peak exit velocity, how hard you hit the ball. That didn't necessarily match up with result during the juice ball era. You didn't. Home runs could be hit by all variety of hitters. Obviously, more exit velocity helped, but it, it didn't. It, it wasn't a clear correlation between those two stats. And I think last year, with the introduction of the deadened baseball, for at least some percentage of the time, that skill became more tied to the result to the point that players who aren't delivering those premium exit velocities did seem to suffer in the home run column quite a bit more. I'm thinking guys like DJ LeMahieu, Glaber Torres, 
I'm sure I could think of some non-Yankees too. <laughs> I was going to say, why don't you just name all the Yankees? I, God, I, I pretty much noticed that across the board in you know doing all the research that I do to come up with my rankings for next year. So I, I feel like moving forward, protect if if baseball sticks with with the 2021 model of the ball and introduces it more consistently and uniformly than they apparently did in 2021, as recent reports have indicated then that will even be a bigger issue going forward. So I, I may emphasize that more for hitters, especially uh, in 2022 than I did in 2021. Yeah, uh, I think that makes a ton of sense. You know, uh, Alex Bregman, someone that stands out in in that category of, yep. you know, would hit a lot of home runs, but didn't necessarily hit the ball hard. So we have to learn more about the baseball. I don't know for sure that anyone's going to know. Uh, what's happening with the baseball before the season starts. Maybe it's part of the CBA. Uh, that is yet to be determined. But yeah, this podcast was a little bit different. I actually, yeah, I had a lot of fun talking about this stuff and, and kind of learning about it a little bit more myself as well. So uh, let us know. Tweet at us, email us in. Uh, tell us, you know, if, if this was helpful enough for you and, and maybe it's something we kind of revisit every offseason uh, to help not only you guys out, but I think help us out a little bit as well. For Scott, I am Frank. Thank you all for listening and watching Fantasy Baseball today. We'll be back again tomorrow. Bye-bye. a very bright shining light Sarajevo and they needed to kill that light from producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2 U2 they represent a personification of our resistance the Hollywood reporter hails kiss the future moving and inspirational kiss the future viva Sarajevo kiss the future new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus go to Paramount Plus to try it free terms apply